This week, I don't know about you, but you know, stage five, whatever that means, um, you know, it, it doesn't mean much different, I don't think. So, um, other than for some restaurants and, and businesses, but you know, we're still in the midst of trying to figure out is stage five good news or not? Is that good news? Let me let me look it up. Let me read the <laughs> rules. Nope, still gotta wear a mask. Still gotta do all the. It's not the news I was hoping for. So it's not gone. It didn't disappear. The curse is still here. The, the disease is still out there. And so, again, we're in our series in the book of Romans. And the series, very simply, that we've talked about is called Not Ashamed. Not Ashamed of Good News. The problem is, we know this, that for us to understand the good news, we have to understand what the bad news is. Because that's what Scripture does. Scripture says from the beginning in Genesis that there's bad news. That humanity is rebelled and that there is a consequence to that rebellion and the rest of the Bible is God saying hey there's good news to the mess you're in not I'm going to take away the mess not COVID disappeared and you can just live however you want now like that that's not that's the news we want that's the news I want to hear it's the news we long to hear right or we just want to ignore it I just want to believe there is no curse there is no disease it's all fake it's all made up you know Okay, or we want to say, well, it's not as bad as it is, which may be true. But in terms of the spiritual disease of sin, that's not true. And last week, we looked at the idea of sanctification. Sanctification becoming more holy. And to become more holy, we talked about that the way the Bible says to do that is for us to take our full delight in the truth of who God is. His character, who he is, that, that as we delight in him... Our desires for the things of this world, our desires to try to fix the curse ourselves, our desire for those things starts to shrink because we're so focused on him that our desires become his desires. That's what being sanctified looks like. But I'll be honest, I don't like that process. <laughs> Often I don't. I fight that process. I want to come up with a fix. I want to show I'm in control. I want to show that this is what it looks like. I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to be ashamed. I want to show that I made up for it and that I deserve. And that's the opposite of the gospel, the good news. It's the opposite of what God has been communicating throughout all of human history. And so week one, we looked at the fact that it, to solve this problem, to find this good news, it first starts with a relationship with God. Paul starts out the book and he says, the Lord Jesus Christ that you need, you need Yahweh who is Yahweh who saves to save you. You can't save yourselves. Not possible. That's how Paul starts the book of Romans. Listen, Romans ruled the world at this time. To hear you're not in control would have been laughable. Like, seriously. <laughs> We're not in control. Do you know the legions we send out to just annihilate people? Do you see the roads we've built? Do you see the cities we've made that are like, no other cities ever in human history. Like, do you, have you seen the Colosseum? Have you seen the things we've done? Like, you're nuts if you think that we need a savior. We're doing just fine. We can save ourselves. It's not as bad as it could be. And Paul starts out saying, you're in trouble. Every nation is in trouble. Because eventually, it all caves on itself. And we're headed the same direction as every other nation. And you might think, that's terrible news. No. It's good news because if this nation doesn't exist and all the other nations of the world don't exist anymore, what does that mean? That we're in Christ's nation, one nation ruled by God forever and ever. That's good news. I don't have to worry about what nation I'm or nationality or laws I'm going to be under. And that's what Paul is doing. And then Paul says, now, 
The reality of this is that when you understand this about God in a relationship with him, then you understand who he is and you understand and begin to see the wrath that is on humanity, the trouble that everyone's in. And we looked at that week too. And then you start asking, how do we make this right? I know there's a loving God who wants to save us, but I see all this wrath and disaster. And so we go to righteousness. What does being right mean? And then Paul says you have to have faith to be right before God to avoid his wrath, to to really know him. It's about placing your trust, your belief, and saying you are everything and I trust you with everything. And then he says, once you do that, the tendency is going to be to want to justify yourself. And we looked at justification, that, that I realized that when I place my faith in God, it's not now I get things and I can justify what I do, what I do. But I go back to the beginning and say it's all about you. And then once we learn what justification is, we then understand that I'm not running around justifying myself. I'm running around and God is making him my delight. That when I understand that I'm forgiven and I'm justified and I don't have to be afraid of him and his wrath and his righteousness, when I understand that he's made me right, that that his wrath has been taken away, then I can delight in the amazing God that he is. See, that's the process Paul's kind of walking through in this letter to these Romans who think, hey, we're pretty good. We got it together. I'm a Roman Christian, which means not only do I live in Rome, or not only am I a Christian, but I live in the greatest nation in the world. Sound familiar? So now we get to this chapter, and Paul dives in and doubles down the last three chapters. Remember, he's been talking about life and death. He dives in. Don't forget our theme verse. For I am not ashamed of the good news, because it's God's power for salvation. We need to be saved to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. It was given to the Jews first, then it came to to those who were non-Jewish next. They were to tell everyone. For in it, God's righteousness, how he makes things right, is revealed throughout all of Scripture, from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous, those who understand What righteousness is and how God makes you right will live by faith, trusting in the relationship, not works. So today, chapter 7 of Romans, and today's title of the message, you've heard me say it before, is I'm not ashamed of doo-doo. I'm not ashamed of doo-doo. I call this the doo-doo passage because it's how I feel sometimes. It's just like doo-doo. I just feel that way. And typically when you read this passage, you're like, I feel like doo-doo. And Paul's saying in this passage, I, I feel like doo-doo. Now, of course, it's not spelled that way. It's two O's. But it's, it's what I want to do, I don't do. And we're going to look at that this morning. The, the fact that, he, here's how Paul says it. Paul goes on, and he's not ashamed to say this to us. He's not ashamed to go into, oops, I got, I got trigger happy. He's not ashamed to kind of explain this. He says, for I do not understand what I'm doing. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is within me. We're going to break that down. But but this is the, the, the crux of the passage. He says, for I don't understand what I'm doing. Hello? Ever been there? That in the midst of doing something, you're going, why am I doing this? This is not smart. This could end badly. And then you just keep doing it. Like, people are looking at you like, don't do that. And you're like, nah. Right? Like, this happened to me. I've been working on the brick on my house all summer. Tuck pointing brick. Grinding it out. 
hour here, hour there, a few hours here, trying to, I mean, it's just been epic. It's been an epic, epic job. And then sealing that brick. And, and a few weeks ago, back in June, July, when we were under the COVID restrictions, I was doing something I knew wasn't smart. There were like, and I told this story before, but there were like five things I was doing that I knew I shouldn't do. I'm on top of a tall ladder. I'm with one hand using a, a high-powered grinder. The disc on the grinder's too small. Like, it's been worn down so much, I'm like, oh, I can get a little more out of it. And then I'm leaning off the ladder on one leg, grabbing the windowsill on this side so I don't fall over on the ladder so I can reach to the other window. I'm like, I'll just get this this little spot right here, it just takes me a second. And the whole time I'm thinking, I could fall and die. The, the wheel's shooting right in my face at this angle. That's not smart. Like, I'm thinking through all these scenarios. And it, as that's happening, the, the, the grinder catches because there's metal things in the brick that attach it to the face. There's these little metal straps that attach to the inner part of the house and go out to the brick. And every once in a while, you'll hit one of those with the grinder. And it's a... Concrete, brick grinder, not a metal grinder. And so when it hits that metal, it kicks back. And that thing kicked right at my face. And luckily, I didn't fall off the ladder. I should have just dropped it and been done, right? No, 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 no. It kicks back, and I reach to grab for it, and my finger goes through the grinder. And I take off almost half of the end of my finger. Now blood squirting, it's running down my arm, and I'm screaming, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I, don't, I can't see how bad it is because I just got blood everywhere. And I'm like, why did I do that? And all the way down the ladder, it's like the walk of shame, right? Like all the way, like stupid, stupid, stupid. Like each step is just stupid, stupid, all the way down. You know, I get to the bottom. I'm like, I can't get the bleeding to stop. So I'm like, what do I do? And I'm like, oh, I've got some electrical tape. And so I grab some electrical tape and I use electrical tape and I use a tourniquet to get it on there. And then I'm like, I got to clean this out. And so now I'm spraying it out. I'm getting it all cleaned out. And, and then I think, I could probably clean it out pretty good. No need to go to the doctor right now. So I didn't. Thankfully, I didn't get sick. I did go later to make sure it was okay. But I cleaned it out. And then later that afternoon, I went back up on the ladder and went back to work. <laughs> like, I don't want to do this brick work. It's not what I want to be doing. I don't like this. I don't enjoy it. It's not fun. But it's what I need to be doing because I can't afford to pay somebody else to do it right now. And so I'm doing it, and in the midst of doing it, there, there are ways to do it, and you've got to know how to do it. And that's what Paul is saying. This is the wrestling of our life. This is how we go through life. And it, it could be just as simple as that, but it could be even more devastating. It, the emotional turmoil and the things that happen. And so Paul says, I've discovered a principle. When, what, when I want to do what is good, I want to do the right thing. I want to get this brick done. I want to get the house done, you know, for my wife. And then I can work on her projects, not the ones that have to be done, but the ones that are fun that she wants done. Like, I'm thinking through all of this, and I want to do what's good, but then there's just evil in me. There's evil all around me. The world is full of just wrath and wickedness. It's just the way it is. And Paul says, I've discovered this. So, how, so what did he discover? Well, go back to chapter 6. He says, for when you are slaves of sin... You are free from allegiance to righteousness. We looked at this last week. So in other words, we're slaves to somebody. The Bible says we're either slaves to God or we're slaves to sin, which means we're slaves to the enemy. There's two camps, right? There's conservatives and liberals. I mean, that's not what I mean. I'm just saying, like there's two parties. There's God and there's Satan. That's it. 
That, 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 you're on one team or the other team, God says. And he says, you were slaves to sin. So we thought maybe we were slaves to ourselves. No, you're not doing what you want to do. You're actually doing what your enemy wants you to do. And you're actually not doing what God wants you to do. Then he says, so the fruit, so what fruit was produced then from the things you're now ashamed of? See, everybody's ashamed of something at some point. It's how we deal with that shame. Some people get depressed. They get so depressed, they take their own lives. They do what they shouldn't do. Some people get ashamed and they get real prideful and justify it. I'll show you. And they become violent and abusive. And... But, but at the heart of it is this idea that I can't ever measure up. I can't get there. And he goes, for the end of those things is death. But now... But now, since you've been liberated from sin because of what Jesus did, which is where Paul started the letter, and have become enslaved to God, that means you're God's servant. You're saying, I want, to, I want you to be my Lord and master. I want you to be in charge because I'm a terrible boss. I fall off ladders. I cut fingers. It's not good. I want you to be in charge. You tell me how to do what's supposed to be done. And I want to, you to do it with me in the process. And God says, I'll be with you in the process. Not just I'm telling you what to do, but I'll actually be there with you. Then he goes on, he says, you have your fruit which results in sanctification. In other words, becoming more and more like God. That the fruit of living this kind of a life and discovering this principle and understanding that life leads to death, but there is life in Jesus, leads to you becoming more like God, having a heart more like him for people, for him, for other people. And then he says, for the wages, oh, and the end is eternal life. In other words, you keep the end in mind that this isn't the end. This world isn't the end. Getting what I want, getting the car I want, the house I want, the wife I want, the kids I want, the job I want, the, the, the career I want, the education is not the end. Not even close. The end is, I realize I'm going to die and eternity stares me in the face. And he says, for the wages of sin, what we earn in sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, if you're trying to earn life, you're dead. But if you understand that God offers a gift of himself, a relationship, and you embrace that, then you've discovered this principle that Paul's going after, which is the principle of life. This is how the Old Testament kind of shows this, because some people say there's a, a disagreement between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? That there was Old Testament and you did the law and you did everything right and that's how you got to God, that's how you got to, sit to heaven. And in the New Testament, Jesus came and no longer do you have to do the law, you just live with grace, it's a free gift, live however you want and in the end he's going to take you to heaven. Both of those are wrong. But that, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible's been consistent in its message. Look at Deuteronomy 30, 15. It says, see today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, he doesn't say your actions. If your heart turns away from wanting the relationship with God, knowing him and being with him, and you don't listen, and you're led astray to bow down to other gods and worship them. In other words, you're listening to someone all the time. I love how people are, you know, talk about, well, I just don't have faith in all that God stuff. Oh, so you have faith in yourself and in other people. 
No, I just, I just I don't live by that faith stuff. I live by science. Well, science is a lot of faith, a ton of faith, a ton of faith. <laughs> it takes a lot of faith to believe the things that are out there. And, and it's always getting confused, and we learn new things that we believed in that were science, settled science, and then one day we wake up and go, it's not settled anymore. We found something different that disproves what we thought was settled science, a crud. It happens all the time. And just when we think we're smart and we got it all figured out, God comes along and says, really? Okay. I love how God says, look, don't be led astray to give your heart, to bow down to anyone but God himself and his plan for your life. I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not live long in the land you're entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him, for he is your life, and he will prolong your life in the land the Lord swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To, to choose life meant embracing the system of death. Let me repeat that. To choose life in this culture was to embrace the system of death. It meant you had to start raising animals to die. It meant that you had to participate in the system God had established. You had to keep your calendar, and the calendar constantly reminded you of your need to be saved and the fact that you were going to die. God put his calendar in the night sky with the moon, not the sun, so that at night when you were afraid of the snakes crawling under your tent and, you know, lions coming in to eat you, you could have confidence to know that you could look at the stars and look at the moon and remember what phase you were in and what was coming in the calendar to save you. It wasn't a, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go get my sacrifice, now I'm good, now I get to go live however I want. It was a constant reminder of I need life and I can't find it here. I can't find the life I want in this relationship or in these kids or in this job or in this education. I'm chasing, chasing, chasing and I can't find the life I want. And God sends these reminders constantly saying, well, remember, I'm going to save you. Remember what this is about. Remember you need to repent. Remember the process of you coming to me. And it was the responsibility of the men of that culture to lead their families to death. But daddy, I love little Bobby Lamb. He's cute. Yep, going to slaughter. And you're coming with me, son. Because our sins and your moms and your sisters and, and the sins of our world, this is not even, this is small compared to what should happen to us. And that little child having to watch his lamb, the throat be slit and bleed out, reminds him, I live in a world of death. I know that's graphic. That's our Bible. And it's got, not like God's saying, I love death and I want death. He's just saying, it's already here. You live in a world of death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He wants to show us that you are deserving of that, but I want to give you life. And so the whole Testament was us having a heart for God to say your life, your life, to give glory and honor to him. That's why he says this, and that, that would bring peace to us. In Leviticus 16, right now we're moving towards tomorrow is Yom Kippur. The day of atonement, the highest holy day of the entire Old Testament calendar is tomorrow. 
Thousands of years, people have been getting their hearts ready when the shofar's blown at Rosh Hashanah and they begin to, the days of awe where they repent to God and tell him how great he is and how small they are and we need you to save us. And then this would happen, Leviticus 16, 29. This is to be a permanent statute. This day of atonement. You need a permanent atonement. Someone has to pay for the mess you're in, for what you do and what you don't do. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the foreigner who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This was supposed to be like delightful, like, oh man, I've, I've, been, I've been carrying the weight of this. I just know the atonement. He's, he's going to forgive and He's going to forgive my sons and my wife. He's going to forgive everyone. This is, I've been longing for this. Not, I've got to go do stupid atonement because God tells me I'm a sinner. Give up what's really valuable, this lamb that I've been working really hard for. I could sell it for a lot of money and do a lot of good with it, but now I've got to sacrifice this stupid thing. You're supposed to be not ashamed to, to take your sons and not ashamed to, to kill the lamb and have your sons go, why, daddy? And go, because of our sin, we live in a world of death. Son, this, is, this should be you and me. And God has provided a substitute. This should be us. We should do this. And he looks and he, he goes on and he says this. It's a Sabbath of complete rest for you. Rest. You rest in what God can do, not you're trying to atone for it. It's not a Sabbath of busyness to prove yourself to God, to prove that I'm so worthy. Look at how awesome I am. It's a day of rest to just sit and go, God, save us. You can save us. I rest in your atonement, not my ability. You're in control. And then he says, and you must practice self-denial. Well, that doesn't sound very restful. I like to rest with the TV on, eating something, drinking something I shouldn't have, like a really sugary pop or coffee in the middle of the day. Like, that's my idea of rest, feet up on the couch, like doing nothing. People are coming to me saying there's stuff to be done and me saying, I'm resting. Thank you. Amen. Like, that's my view of rest. And if you're honest, that's yours too, deep down inside. It's a rest in the relationship. It's a rest in the atonement. Then he goes on, he says, look at this. The priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as high priest in place of his father will make atonement. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Jesus is the son of God who takes the place, who sits, he's been ordained since the foundation of the world. He is the anointed Messiah since the beginning of time and he sits in place for us. So God said, I want to use an earthly example and I'm going to set up an earthly example that points to a heavenly reality. He will put on the linen garments, that's the clean, the, the pure garments, the holy garments and purify the most holy place. See, Jesus wants to purify the most holy place. Do you know where the most holy place is now? 
The temple's been torn down. There is no tabernacle. Ezekiel says that God moved the tabernacle and the temple to the human heart, that your body and my body are a temple for the Holy Spirit to reside in. And so God wants to come and help us be sanctified so that we can do this. We can come into, like Jesus is, says, I'm going to purify the most holy place. That's your heart. God is so after your heart. He so wants your heart. Because he knows if he has your heart, the rest will follow. It won't be about works. He'll have your heart. And then he says, he will purify the tent of meeting, the heart. The tent moved from the heart of flesh, of, or the heart of the, of the flesh of animals, which is the skins that were the tent, to the heart of the human. And then it says, and the altar will make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. And Christ's cross became our altar, our atonement, where his blood was shed for us and for everyone, even those screaming, crucify him. You see, we have to not be ashamed of this message. And the problem is we've been walking around, most Christians, for the last several decades, if not longer, ashamed, ashamed of the reality of the whole picture of God's work. There are Christians who walk around and they see the shame of the world and they feel their own shame. And so their response is to tell everybody to measure up, to do better. I mean, we're in a fight right now, right? We're in a fight right now about a Supreme Court justice. The law isn't going to fix this. That's what Paul is saying. Look in Romans 7. We're going to blow through this. It says, since I'm speaking to those who understand the law, brothers... Are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? In other words, as long as you live on this earth, as long as you're alive, laws are in place. You can't get rid of the law of gravity. There are things you can do to defy it, get around it, whatever, but eventually gravity catches up with you. It just does. There are laws in place. And he says, look, in terms of the Old Testament law, he says, brothers, are, I know you're not unaware of what God says. That the law has authority over someone as long as he lives. But once the person's dead, the, there's, now he's been transferred to a new place. He's no longer in the body. The soul, the spirit goes someplace else. And it's a different place with different laws and rules. Do you understand that gravity changes around the universe? That, that here, our gravity is a certain exact specification for us to, to have life. But if you go to like Jupiter, the gravity will crush you. You can't exist there. Like, like gravity itself, and he looks and it says, look, as long as someone lives. And so Paul says, look, I want to give an example, the best example I can of what this looks like. For example, a married woman or man, he just uses woman here, is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she gives herself to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress, or he will be. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. Then if she gives herself to another man, she is not an adulteress. The Bible lays out clearly the guidelines for marriage and how things are supposed to be done. Now, is adultery forgivable? Yes, 
We can confess adultery and say, I'm sorry. And God says, I will forgive you. But that doesn't free you from the consequences. If you have children, I hate to tell you this, but you're always going to be married to your first spouse. They're always going to be in your life as long as you're alive. You don't think so? Wait till your kid gets older, gets married and has children and tells you, I'm not coming to your family family Christmas because I'm going to dad's. So you can stick it, mom. And see how that feels. See if you don't die a little bit or feel death a little bit. You're not reminded of the mess that you're in. And what do we do with that? And God says, when you... When, when death happens, there's a freedom. And, and let me back the truck up here. What Paul is talking about, I believe, is not the idea of, he's talking about the gospel. In other words, for example, a married woman. So if you marry Christ, if you say, I'm in, I am the bride of Christ, I submit to Christ, then you are released from the former spouse of the law. You don't listen to the law to get what you want or to be in the relationship. You listen to the new relationship because Christ died to the law. Now we can live for him and for grace. We can take our full delight in Jesus because our first husband's dead. And I don't have this tension anymore. I don't have this battle in me anymore. I don't have to live with what I've done and not done. They're dead. They're gone. I'm moving on. That's the beauty of what Christ does. And Paul is saying, I'm giving you this example because you need to know that if you've accepted Christ, you are no longer, you're dead to the things and the ways of life that don't delight in God. You are alive to delight in God like Deuteronomy and Leviticus talks about. He wants to bring healing and sanctification, but it takes time. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I wish I could, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, you do put up with me. That's a little bit of Paul's humor, by the way. I love that the Bible contains like humor and sarcasm and all kinds of the things that we use. He's like, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, yeah, you do put up with me. Like, I think that about you guys all the time. Like, that our church puts up with me. That crosses my mind on a regular basis. Like, I'm very grateful for those that put up with me, including those in my own household. Like, and he goes on, he says, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his, coming, his, his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm afraid that you, you're not taking your delight in Christ anymore. That someone's come along and told you, oh, you can't delight in Jesus. That's not enough. There's, there's something else that needs to be added for you really to have joy. See, this is how cults happen. This is how the mess of Christianity and the mess that we're in has happened. Is someone keeps adding to the message of you just have to trust him, his sacrifice, his atonement, who he is, and place your faith in him, and then say, what do you want from me? And when he tells you, say, let's do it together. I'll do what you want to do because you'll be with me doing it. That's the Christian message. Not I do to get something. Paul says, I am jealous for you to realize that you have someone who is preparing a place for you, getting you ready for the final relationship and the full relationship that will bring you the ultimate delight. But he says, I fear that this is the serpent deceived Eve. Your minds may be 
seduced. He goes on to say it this way. He says, for if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, another Yahweh saves, another way that Yahweh saves other than the Messiah who atones for the sins of the people, or you receive a different spirit, in other words, they tell you, well, when you came to know Jesus, you didn't get the Holy Spirit. You need another spirit, a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, a different good news, that they add to the, to the free gift of grace, which you have not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Why do you put up with this? Why do we put up with adding to the gospel? And we're okay with that. It's, the, it's Jesus plus baptism. It's, it's Jesus plus getting filled with the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus plus a Hail Mary and some Our Fathers. There is no Jesus plus. There's no Yahweh saves plus something else. Either he saves and I trust him and I take my full delight in him and it doesn't, and regardless of the circumstances I find myself in, I believe by faith that that's the Christian message and I put myself full in and full out on that or I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. The doo-doo's coming back. And you're gonna live a life of doo-doo if you don't understand this. Look at what Paul says in Galatians. He goes on, he says this. I am amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ, by the Messiah, the one who saves, and are turning to a different good news, a different gospel. Not that there's another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want you to change the good news about Jesus. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another, preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. An anathema is what the word is. It's like, it's like awful. And then he says, as we have said before, I now say to you, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, a curse be on him. Listen, don't curse yourself and don't put a curse on other people because you add to the gospel. So then what do we do with works? What do we do with this Paul, this struggle Paul has? He says, therefore, my brothers, chapter 7, you were also put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead so that we may bear fruit for God. In other words, you've died He's given you new life. Don't go back and live in a dead body. He goes on and he says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit that's been deposited in the human heart that Ezekiel prophesied and not in the old letter of the law. It's not about going through and saying, What do you want? What do you want? Listen. Every summer, except this past one, almost every summer, I have taught youth camp. And at youth camp, the first thing I do on the first day every time is I sit down with the kids and I say, how many of you know you should have a quiet time? You should spend time reading God's word. Everybody raises their hand. Then I say, how many of you have ever been taught how to read the Bible and have a quiet time? And like two out of 25 raise their hand. And I said, well, there's a simple process. Let's do it together. 
Read the passage. I pick a passage. Sometimes I just drop the Bible and drop a finger in. Say, well, we'll figure it out. I said, don't do that normally, but I'm just trying to teach you a lesson here. What does this tell you about who God is? What does this passage tell you about God, about who man is, our rebellion and, and God's delight in man? What does this passage tell you about who you are in light of who God is and who man is? And now what does God want you to do in light of the fact of who God is, who man is, who you are, now what do you do? Most of Christianity is I go to my quiet time so I can find out what to do. And then we wonder why God feels so distant. Because you're back under the law. God doesn't want you to do. He wants your heart. He wants you surrendered. He wants to be so close and intimate with you that nobody can get in. So that you can then open yourself up like Christ did to give your life to others. Because you're not getting from them. You don't need from them. You're taking your delight in him. And so you don't have to get from people. You can give. This is what Paul's going after. He goes on, he says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the command, deceived me, and though it killed me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the command. Guys, I would appreciate when you get up on Sunday morning, you not say, we're going to continue in the service, here comes Matt, like it's the Johnny Carson show. Like, Right? And Brian admitted this morning, it's like, oh, game on. Now, it's, it's funny. This isn't like, you know, big sin, whatever. It's just, but that's what it does. Let me give you another example. Let's say you're walking through a street, right? You're walking around here, and the street's dirty, and there's like chewing gum and stuff everywhere, and you got a big loogie. But there's a sign that says, please, no spitting. But you look around, and you're like, People spit everywhere. Like, I see it's nasty. It's down the walls, and there's two in the back and a bottle over there. And I can spit. But if you were to go to the Louvre in Paris, and you had a loogie that just came out of nowhere, the thought would never occur to you to just spit. You'd be like, I'm going to find a bathroom. And you would go and find a bathroom as quickly as you could to spit in whatever receptacle you could find. Why? There's no sign in the Louvre that says don't spit. That sign anywhere says don't spit. Because you understand where you are. And when you look around and you see the beauty and the cleanliness and the glory of the Louvre and the art, you think, wow. But when you're walking down the street and you see chewing gum and spit and all kinds of nasty, you're like, it doesn't matter. That's exactly what Paul's, the commands of the Bible just expose how we see things. That's all it does. The commands of the Bible expose our heart and how we see the world around us and how we see ourselves. That's why Paul says the, the law needs to be there. These commands need to be there because otherwise we'll think we're okay and we're not. We need a sign that says don't spit because we'll keep spitting and making everybody sick. We'll ruin our world. But then when I see the sign, I'm like, well, I'm not Spit. But see, when you come to know Christ and his beauty and his glory and his holiness, all of a sudden you don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to just, I don't, I'm not going to just spit in the Louvre. No, I'm not, I'm not even going to spit on the stretches. Even though everybody else is spitting, I'm not going to spit there. And dude, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to find another way. Like, that's what happens when the gospel gets in you. 
that his laws begin to, you can begin to take delight in what he says, not because they get you something, but because they teach you about who he is and who you are and who other people are. And all of a sudden you, you see the world as a beautiful place that's going to be redeemed, that God's going to save. And you're like, oh, I see the wickedness, but I also see the beauty. And that just tears you up, which is exactly where Paul goes. Therefore, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. The law is good. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond all measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm made out of flesh, sold into sin's power without the power of Christ. What is he saying here? Let me ask you. When you came to faith in Jesus, or maybe you came to faith at a very young age, but later in life you're like, I'm done. I surrender. That I might become sinful beyond measure. See, that's, that's where I ended up. Oh, am I in the right spot? Sorry. Um, sinful beyond measure. That was me my freshman year. When I finally came to the end of myself, I had lost girlfriend in sports and I'd lost my best friend who committed suicide. I'd, I'd seen so much death and I just was trying harder and harder and harder and I finally came to the end of myself and I cried out to God and I said, God, if you exist, help. And that was it. Someone came and shared the good news with me, shared the grace of God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And for the first time, the Bible became like the Louvre. It was beautiful. It wasn't just a story. It wasn't just to go out and do this and be a nice person. It was like, oh my goodness, this God is real and he loves me. He takes delight in his grace and his gift. And it changed me because I recognized how sinful beyond measure I was and the world was and how in trouble I and everybody else was. And as soon as I came to know Christ, you know what I did just about a month and a half later? When I went home for break, I took tracks, the same little thing someone shared with me. I didn't know much. I just took that little track, walked into the first party all my friends had coming back, probably a dozen, 15 people in the room, handed out tracts to everybody. I said, most of you went to church, and I know you've never heard this probably because none of you told me about it, and if you believe it, you tell me about it. So here it is. And I shared Christ with the entire room. And I told them, we're sinful beyond measure, but this is the good news. None of them prayed to receive Jesus at that moment. (laughs) But one by one, I have watched over the years them commit their lives to him. Because God is loving and he's patient and it's a gift and they didn't earn it. And one by one, they begin to understand that they are sinful beyond measure, but there is a God that says, I love you. For I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Ever do what you hate? And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. In other words, if I say, I don't want to do this, you're agreeing. You don't want to do this. (laughs) Versus saying, I want to do this, and I think the law says I can kill people, so I'm just going to go out and kill people. No, then you're lying. No, he says, if you think, I don't want to hurt this person, but I'm going to hurt them. Okay. At least you acknowledge that the law is good, that it's there. And then he says, so now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin living in me. In other words, I've sold out to the other master. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. Do you know that? 
See, that's the problem in our culture. We think there's the Christians, the non-Christians, and then the good people camp. There's three camps of people. And most Christians want to be in the good people camp, not the Christian camp, because the good people camp gets you a lot more in life, typically. Because it doesn't tell people the truth about the reality of what Paul's trying to, to express here in Romans. Do you recognize that there's nothing good in you? That is in your flesh. But if the Holy Spirit's in you, if you've been atoned for because of Jesus and he has filled you up, then you are a pure, spotless bride. That there's everything good in you, not because of you, but because of him putting it in you. Wow. Paul goes on, he says, for the desire to do what is good is within me, but there's no ability to do it. I want to do what's good, but I just keep failing. And then he says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin that lives in me. In other words, you're recognizing I'm going in the opposite direction of delighting in God and going after his heart. I'm chasing my own heart, and in reality, I'm chasing the heart of the enemy who tells me to chase my own heart. And that's the camp I'm in, and if I go that way, I am not doing what God says to be doing. He goes on and he says this. So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is within me. In other words, we're still in this body of flesh. There's evil around us. And I want to do what's right. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. It's like, this is not a good idea to lean off this ladder. All the laws are telling me, don't do this right now. But it seems so easy. Just a second. Seems so right. But I see a different law in the parts of my body. The law of grinder wheel to finger. The grinder wheel beats flesh. And it says, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of the sin in the parts of my body. There is a war raging, Paul says. And then we're surprised by it. Because we think, well, if I just accept Jesus and I have great, then everything's going to get better and better and better. It's like, have you read your Bible? Have you read the book of Revelation? It doesn't end well. Like the book of Revelation doesn't, like it does finally end, but like it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then it's like, God has to come back or we're all going to kill each other. Like that's, that's the story. Do we not see that happening now? That it's getting worse and worse and worse and the more laws we pass and the more justices we put in place and the more rulers we vote for that we want, it just keeps getting worse. Why? Because the battle isn't out there. It's in here. It's in your heart and in my heart. Look at what Jesus said in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. You might think you're doing something. You might think you're smart. You might think you've accomplished things. You might think, but I'm telling you, you can do nothing that lasts if it isn't about delighting in him. And listen, you can delight in someone and still like struggle to like have the relationship. You can still delight. That's what Paul writes these letters. He's struggling with the churches because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, but he's writing them saying, I delight so much in you. I'm so jealous for you. I so want you to see the God I know goes on it says this Paul says what a wretched man I am you ever been there where you're struggling I want to do but I don't do and you're you're in the middle of the doo-doo you're standing knee deep in doo-doo 
And you're thinking, what a wretched person. And yep, you are wretched. You stink. It's like a baby that just blows out the diaper. You know what I mean? And it's like, ugh. And everybody's like, you clean. No, you clean. It's your turn. No, it's your turn. Like it's, right? Nobody takes delight in cleaning up. It's not like, oh, I'm going to take so, I just want to clean her up. Oh, it's going to be wonderful. She's going to feel so clean and loved and cared for. It's like, ah, you do it. And God says, no, I'll do it. I'll clean you up. You can crap all over yourself, and I'll still come to you and offer myself to you and my love. If you'll just take delight, just a smile, just a... Just like when you change your baby and the baby looks at you and looks up to you and smiles at you, <laughs> says nothing you can understand, and you're like, oh, this is so cute. It's worth it. And you pick them up and you hug them. You play with them. Okay, I'm done. And you hand it off. No, I'm just kidding. And so he says, what a wretched. He said, who will rescue me from this dying body? In other words, I can't rescue myself. The Romans can't rescue me. The United States, this Supreme Court justice isn't going to rescue me. Now, are there righteous laws? Sure, there are laws that are righteous and unrighteous according to Scripture. And we should know those and we should talk about those. But we should also talk about the fact that those laws are to lead us to repentance, not to fixing our culture the way we want it. He goes on and he says, I thank God through Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah, our Yahweh, that's what he says there, Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. I got a war going on. And I have to crucify this flesh, and I need to find delight in that process. Well, let me tell you what this looks like. Finding delight in the process of crucifying the flesh. There's a couple of people that pop into mind. Betty and Envy Bray. Two people that whenever I've come to their house, I hear laughter and smiles. Their life hasn't turned out like maybe they'd hoped. Every card she writes and prayer they pray together, it is a delight for them. And you watch them dying. Because they're getting old. My parents, the same thing. I watched my parents dying, and when I called my dad, he's just taking delight in how many people they fed that week at the food pantry, how many New Testaments he passed out, how many people he got to share Jesus with. And he doesn't know if he's going to live tomorrow. That's what taking delight, man, it's like I, I take delight, I take delight in him. Not my flesh. Jesus was speaking to Peter before he transcended into heaven, before the Holy Spirit came. And Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me, right? And when we ask ours, do I really love God? Because I don't do what he wants me to do. Here's what he says. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Now, why is Jesus telling this to Peter? Because Peter's fishing and Jesus told him to stop fishing. He told him that when he first started following him three and a half years earlier. <laughs> you will not fish anymore. Stop it. You're not fishing. Leave your boats, put down your nets, come follow me. Jesus dies on the cross. He goes away for a while. And Peter's like, oh, I'm going back to fishing. No. 
And he looks at him, he says, I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt, walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God, how Peter would die. Peter, is it really worth it following me? Because I'm telling you, it's probably not going to end up the way you think. And Peter gets that that's what Jesus is telling him. Because he says, after saying this, he told him, follow me, Peter. That's what he said originally. Put down your nets and follow me. Now he's coming back. He's saying, put down your nets, follow me, be with me, delight in me, walk with me, go through life. And then he says, so Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. I love that John says the disciple Jesus loved. Like, Peter realized that Jesus didn't love him, but he loved that guy. Like, like. It was also John writing the letter, which was the disciple Jesus loved. So it's kind of funny, too, that John puts in there, like, you know, the disciple Jesus really loved. I don't, that probably wasn't his heart. But I just, it's just the humor of the Bible when you read this. And he says, look, he turned around and saw the deceit following them. That disciple was the one whom Jesus, who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Are you going to have more delight if I treat him worse than you? If I treat you better than him, does that give you more delight in me? For you to stand up and go, well, obviously God loves me because look how great things have turned out and how bad it's turned out for them. Like, no, Jesus is like, Peter, stop looking around and look at me. Delight in me. If you have me, you don't need to worry about what everybody else is doing. You have my word. You have the Holy Spirit that's coming. Delight in me. It goes on in 1 Corinthians 10. This is what Paul says as we finish up. He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the God's glory. In other words, to delight in him. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. The gift of salvation. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to profit. I'm trying to, to tell people that there is a way to be saved. Do everything to delight and participate in the glory of God. Don't do laws thinking it's going to turn out a certain way if you do it. Because often it doesn't. And you can't do it anyway. You can try to obey the speed limit at every moment. And I promise you, you will look away and see a beautiful cow in the field someday and blow right through a sign and you're going 20 over in a speed trap. And get pulled over and they're like, ticket. And you're like, but I... You don't understand, none of my friends drive the speed limit. I drive it all the time. And I, just one time, I missed the sign, and now I get a ticket. And the police officer's going to be like, you're lying, number one. And then he's going to look, and he's say, but did you break the law? Yeah. Okay, well, then here's the ticket. And then you put yourself at the grace of God and say, thank you, God, for giving me life and money to pay it, and I can move on with my life. It's not the end of everything. Like, Here's the kicker. As Paul goes into chapter 8, and he's just laid out this whole doo-doo, that we're in the middle of a bunch of doo-doo, trying to figure out how to live this life and trust him and look for his glory. Here's how he goes into chapter 8. Therefore, because of this principle, this war that's going on, this principle I've discovered, he goes, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, that should fire you up. That should give you chills down your spine. 
That there is not a God in heaven looking down at you and going, there's a God in heaven looking down with his arms open like Jesus on the cross saying, come to me. And he says, because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's dominion as a sin offering, atonement, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but now according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh think about the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit about the things of the spirit. For the mind set of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Paul says, where's your mindset? Is it about what you can get and what you feel and what you can do? Or is your mind set on the delight and glory and love of the greatest relationship offered to humanity in the history of the world and the plan for all of the universe. Which is it? Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to be looking around like Peter and say, well, well they've got a great marriage. Well, well, they've got good kids that don't act up. Well, they, well, they, well, they, well, they. It's living to the flesh. Look to God. Look to his word. Say, God, Help me, show me, teach me your ways. Help me do them because I can't do them without you. And I just want to show you that I love you and I delight in you. So tell me what to do. Show me. And when I don't do it, I know I can come to you and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. And you'll say, no condemnation, love you. Let's try again. That's what the battle really looks like, is a mindset on Christ that only he can do. You can't do anything without faith. And he says that if you live according to the flesh, and this is why we celebrate communion. Communion is the reminder, the reminder that the flesh has been destroyed. The blood has been shed. And we participate in that shedding and that dying so that we are set free in him and communion is a moment of taking delight so I would encourage you this week to get your hearts ready tomorrow is Yom Kippur it's the day of atonement Jesus says he wants to atone for anything you've ever done he will pay the price it is a free gift and if we delight in him we don't have to worry about disobeying the law all the time just put our focus on him and want to know him. And he patiently, like a little child growing up, walks us through the process of sanctification to become more like him. That's what we do. That's what communion is. It's the reminder of the atonement to walk away remembering that we've been paid for. It's beautiful. That's what Paul's trying to say in Romans. So let me ask you this morning, do you know him? Have you surrendered to him? And if you have surrendered to him and you've made that choice, have you slipped back like Corinthians and Galatians talks about? Are you going back to a former way of living instead of saying, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm moving forward. Are, are you inviting the body of Christ into your life and inviting others to help you to move forward so that you can take your delight? Are you delighting with other people? Or are you just living in your misery? See, God says, I want to invite you into this dying together so that we can ultimately live forever. But 
That's, that's the beauty of this. And if you don't know him, man, ask him to come in. He'll forgive. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he'll give his grace and his free gift. And then he will help you to do what you need to do. And the first step of that doing is, I can do nothing without you. And then he gives us the power of his spirit to then move out from there. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. This is a heavy message. But I love that it's here. I love that Paul is not holding back. I thank you that Paul puts it on display, the struggle that's within him. That here's this spiritual giant and he's struggling with honoring you and walking with you. And he comes back over and over again to delighting in you. Father, I pray that would be our heart, that we would not be ashamed of the law. We'd not be ashamed of the gospel and the delight that we have in you. That we wouldn't pretend like we don't know you because we don't want to upset anybody, but we would be bold about who we know and what you've done. That when we talk about the law and how to fix things and what to do, we would talk about it in the context that that is a good law, but it's not going to really fix the real problem, which is the human heart. Father, help us to be changed, to see who you are, and take our delight in you. Lord, if anyone here hasn't made that decision to cross and say, I surrender and I follow you, pray today would be that day. Thank you for all these pictures in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Romans, the picture of communion that we'll celebrate next week. Yom Kippur. Lord, thank you that you atone. In your name, amen.